is Matthew 13, 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. But he who has ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus returns to Nazareth, the place of his childhood, place of his upbringing, the town where he learned the trade of carpentry, which could have included work in both wood and stone. He grew here in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men, Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 52. And he'd actually returned there approximately one year prior to the account that we just read. And so if you keep a finger in this text, we're going we're gonna to read that first encounter that took place in Luke 4, uh, verses 16 through 30. Because about a year before, again, this that we just read this morning, this took place. And he came to Nazareth, that is Jesus, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Returning to our text in Matthew, it's about a year later, and you can see how he would be eager to return to Nazareth. They were a very ready audience, if you will. But we've read in Matthew previously in chapter 12, verse 46, that Jesus' mother and brothers had come to speak to him, but he doesn't tell us whether or not that ever took place. So perhaps following the conclusion of his teaching in this area, where he's pronounced these parables, and it was likely the area of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, he returns. Perhaps he returns because of that visit, uh, to go spend time with them, talk to them, see what their need was. At any rate, whether it's in response to that or some other reason, he returns to Nazareth. And we find him in the synagogue, the same synagogue that what we just read in Luke um, 
had unceremoniously ushered him out in order to stone him. We discover him doing what he's been doing. He's teaching. No doubt, stories have continued to return to this place, to Nazareth, and wonderful stories they were. Blind men seen, dead people revived, sick people healed. The stories of these mighty works just continued to return to this place of his assumed provenance. They knew this boy, now, now man, how he'd come up. It must have been difficult to reconcile what they knew with what they'd heard and were now hearing. Such wisdom, so many mighty works. It says that they were astonished at those things. But how? How could this come about? He was the son of a man of no consequence. He'd come about through some questionable means. And though rumor had it they were of the line of David, that line had done nothing. Nothing of significance for the people for hundreds of years. So there was no reason really to expect anything much of him. He's just another boy from Nazareth. So, so what, what to make of this? To make of this? To make of him? And, and all this about him? That was the question as he returns there and teaches. But we face similar questions today. Though we didn't come up with Jesus in the flesh, the questions still come. A carpenter turned rabbi from a small town in a backwater province of a Roman Empire is the savior of the world? Really? You believe that? How, can, how could that possibly be? For a criminal convicted and crucified? I mean, you don't end up on a cross unless you've done something wrong. I mean, he must have broken the law somehow. The Romans saw fit to crucify him. And he's the deliverer of men? Then you get to the kicker. A man returned from the dead and ascended into heaven? Now you're just being silly. Dead people don't rise because dead people don't rise. You didn't really give me anything of substance there. You just repeated yourself. But the question is, that's your hope? These things are so simplistic, so old, so unbelievable. But he seems to have done some significant things because people still talk about him. People still come together to, to hear about him, to hear his teachings, to be shaped by them, molded by them. To be, well, do they come together because they've been saved by him? Indeed, some of the things that are reported are seemingly unbelievable, and maybe you've seen some of those questions, had those questions yourself, or dealt with those who continue to have those questions. Because they're, que they're questions that still come up. It's a matter of what to do with Jesus Christ. This is a passage that perhaps it's shocking to us, but also one that maybe we quickly pass by. Jesus goes back to Nazareth, and they don't see anything impressive about him, and he goes on his way. So then, you know, move on, Matthew chapter 14. But when we look with maybe a little closer examination, I think sometimes, I think we discover some things that are easily forgotten things that are, can be dismissed, as well as poignant to our own lives and days in which we live. Some ones that maybe get a little bit uncomfortable. And we also want to keep in mind where Matthew records this, because he records this return to Nazareth after he's done what? He's recorded these parables, parables of the kingdom. He's concluded that recording of those parables, and those parables, most of them spoke to what? 
the nature of the kingdom. And what particularly about the nature of the kingdom? Well, how it comes. It comes in unexpected ways. It comes through ordinary means that were and will be missed by many. Because if there's anything that we have a tendency to put off or to ignore, it's the ordinary, right? Before the people of Nazareth stood God incarnate, God in the flesh, who speaks and works as only he can, revealing the kingdom of heaven, and they miss it. Are we much different in our day? Let's consider it. Jesus comes back to Nazareth. So when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, that is Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogues, or in synagogue, so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So what's their response? Their response is astonishment. They're astonished. By what? Well, the same thing that we've seen people astonished by throughout Matthew. By the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people are in astonishment because he taught them with an authority that was just unknown to them. In Mark 7, 37, so wonderful and good were his works that the response of the people was, he has done all things well. This had made it back to Nazareth. And as he's sitting there teaching, they're astonished once again at the wisdom and the mighty works, whether they've been seen directly by them or people who have been about and heard them. There's astonishment that's there. But as they're astonished, they also do what? They wonder. What do they wonder about? Where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? That's a wondering question. So while they're amazed at his words and his works, what comes pretty clear pretty quickly is they're not amazed with what? Him. They're not amazed with him. They didn't trust him. Well, why not? Well, they, they knew him. They knew him. You hear it in their questions, right? Where did this man get these, this wisdom, these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter? I mean, we saw him going to work once he was of age, going back and forth to work with his dad day, day by day. I remember taking stuff to him to get, to get it you know, fixed or repaired. Well, isn't his mom married? Well, we know his brothers. Well, they, they, knew, him according, they knew him according to the flesh. They didn't know him according to the Spirit. Later on, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.15 is going to talk about the wonder of knowing him by the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, starting in 14, it says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. But there's got to be eyes that would see that. Eyes that would understand that this one who is alive, he's, he's no longer dead. This is what he's come for. They knew his family well. They seemed to know him well. And what's more, it seems that there was no one all that remarkable in his clan, right? I mean, they didn't expect someone wonderful to come from them. It doesn't mean that they thought him to be a, you know, a ne'er-do-well. 
But no one wonderful had come from his clan. He was lacking in formal education. He shouldn't be able to teach with the authority he does. Where does he get off? Who does he think he is? We know him. And here's, here's one of the things that, if, if we're not paying attention, we miss real quick. Because we remember Christ became like us in what? In every way. Now, nothing against anybody gathered here, but how many of you have had people follow you around all your life? I know you're going to be wonderful. I can just tell. That wasn't Jesus. The people in his town weren't lined up to go, you know that Jesus, I always knew he was going to make something of himself. No. We have testimony about the ordinariness of Christ in the people in his town that don't expect any of this to come about. For him to be the Messiah. It seems that there was nothing remarkable about him to draw men to him. Isaiah 53, 2. This encounter stands as a testimony to that fact. So they're astonished with the wisdom and the mighty works. They're wondering, how can this possibly be? Maybe even a little bit of that. Who does he think he is? And, and what leads us to that conclusion is how they respond. In 57, it tells us what they did. In Matthew 14, 57, it says they took what? Offense. They took offense at him. Notice it's not that Jesus was seeking to what? He wasn't seeking to give offense. They took offense. The question they were asking arose from contempt for him and offense at him. And one of the things that stands out to us here with that regard is they took offense at him. And we think about Jesus was rejected by mankind. Again, we return to that reality that he was made like us in every way. But the rejection that Jesus experienced in Nazareth, we've already seen at one point it was murderous because they took him out to the brow of the hill to throw him down and stone him. And it was scoffing. Who does he think he is? But that rejection that Jesus experienced at Nazareth, do you notice or do you remember how far and how deep it went? Because it wasn't just the people outside of his home in Nazareth. It went all the way where? Into his own household. In John 7, 3 through 5, we're told that his brothers said, hey, no one who seeks what you seek wants to be hidden. And John gives us the narrative detail because not even his brothers believed in it. The rejection that Jesus experienced in Nazareth was murderous, scoffing, and it went all the way into the home he grew up in. Pastor, that's not very, that's not good. It's not good, but on, on one hand, but on the other hand, what does that say to you? What does that put forward to you? If you've ever wondered about this Savior and can he relate to hurt and pain, carried by those who come from hard home lives. This stands as a witness. He understands. Because he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And that includes even the pain of rejection all the way into the home. This one, he knows what that hurts like. And he continues to call out. 
this one who would be the Savior of the world. And maybe in your ears is ringing, oh, people of Nazareth, you took offense. And standing before you is the one who's just recently said in our narrative back in Matthew 11, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And what are the people of Nazareth offended by him? Because why? Because they're familiar with him. I know him. I know what he was when he was this tall. And Jesus makes an assessment. As they took offense, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, meaning that a prophet is honored, right? Everywhere except where? In his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He didn't do mighty, many mighty works there. Their unbelief was a hard unbelief. But the thing that we need to understand is that did not in any way bind the power of our Lord and Savior. If their unbelief binds his power, that means he relies upon them for his power. But he doesn't rely upon them for his power. The reason he didn't work was because of the unbelief. He knows their hearts, and he knows the reality that he chose not to do many mighty works there, knowing their hearts and their abiding unresponsiveness. And what we see here, there's an element of judgment, but there's also an element of mercy. Because he's going to leave, and as far as we know, he never goes back. So they won't hear what again? unless they're in Jerusalem to hear him from the cross. They won't hear his voice again. They might hear reports of his teaching come from afar. When the voice of God is removed, that is not a blessing. They also wouldn't see what? Those works that verify that he is who he said he was. The removal of a witness. But there's also the reality that well, there's a part of judgment in that, there's also a part of mercy in that, because we know that Nazareth isn't left without hope, because what do we, when this is getting, we're getting ahead of ourselves, we're fast forwarding in the story. There are people from Nazareth who will be saved, who will trust in him eventually. His brothers. We get to the beginning of Acts, and there's a ray of sunshine for those that, after he leaves and never goes back to, to Nazareth, we know that among those that gathered before the Pentecost, who were among them? His mom and his brothers, and we can likely assume his sisters as well. So if nothing else, there are those that do respond, but there's something in this that Christ being, there's this, this, this bit of judgment that comes, and they're not going to hear his voice, they're not going to witness these works, but there's also mercy because if they see those and if they hear those, what gets piled up against them the longer they remain hard? Guilt. So there's two sides of that that we need to recognize and understand. That was Nazareth's response. And we continue to proclaim this Jesus, this one who has accomplished at this point in redemptive history, everything that he came to do. He lived the perfect life. He went to the cross as a substitute for you, for us, to die in our place for our sins, 
to be buried, to rise again, and to ascend to the right hand of God. We have so much more that has been completed that we point to. What's our response? Are we astonished? Because we should be. But as we're astonished, and hopefully we are astonished at Christ, we have to recognize we can be astonished with any number of things, but we don't stay in astonishment. We don't remain there. When we're astonished by something, it piques our interest. And perhaps we pursue them to a degree, right? I'm astonished by that. How does that work? How do you do that? Sometimes we might be astonished by art. We might be astonished by music. We might be astonished by math. We might be astonished by things in creation. And we seek to know more about it. Sometimes as we learn more, we become less astonished because, well, now that I know how it works, it's not as astonishing. Let me tell you something about Christ. That will never happen. Because the more you learn about him, the more you know about him, the more you understand him through his word and through seeing him work, astonishment will continue to come. But sometimes in these creative things, we learn more and we become less astonished because we know more about how it works and how the effect brought it about. But we didn't stop at astonishment and remain there. Perhaps we didn't pursue it. I don't have the time to pursue it. I'm astonished by it, but I don't have the time right now. It becomes something that was interesting, but we still don't remain in astonishment. In a similar manner when we encounter Christ, we will never stop at astonishment. Indeed, we can't. You cannot. And it's not to say that we're not daily astonished at or by or with Christ, I certainly hope you are. Far from it. Actually, astonishment is part and parcel of man's encounter with Christ because he is so simultaneously similar, yet different. For many men who ever walked the earth before, in, or after his time. But that astonishment Remember, we don't stay in astonishment, right? Astonishment comes and we do one of two things when it comes to this. We move forward from it in one of two directions. And the end point of those divergent directions is of eternal consequence. It matters greatly which direction we go. And you can't give any countenance to any wily Cheshire cats that you meet along the way that say it doesn't matter which way you go. Oh, it does. It matters absolutely which way you go. Because all people go into eternity. Because it is for eternity that man was made. The question is which eternal destination will be our residence. One of eternal bliss in the presence of the triune God or of eternal anguish, as indicated in the parables that Jesus is, two of the parables Jesus has just taught of the weeds and of the net. Astonishment with Christ, while we hopefully are daily astonished with him, by him, in him, at some point was likely the beginning of our journey in Christ. Astonishment will give way to either what we've seen in Nazareth, offense, or do you know what the opposite of offense is? Offense, not a fence. <laughs> Delight. 
delight. How many, when's the last time you said that this delights me? Or something's delightful. Now, maybe, but it's not necessarily in the regular repertoire of the language that goes around. Maybe it should be. Because we're really good at offense, aren't we? This is going to get personal. It's going to hurt. (laughs) But we need to recognize where offense leads, and we need to recognize where delight leads, because the Bible tells us time and again. Astonishment will give way to either offense or its opposite, delight. So we'll start with offense. Offense pursued will escort one from non-belief into unbelief. Let me clarify a little bit. I say non-belief because in order to believe in something, or in this we're talking about someone, you must know something of them. If someone's never heard of Christ, you say, do you believe in Christ? Their first response should be, tell me about it. Because they, they don't know him. They know the reality that there is God. Because Romans makes very clear that everyone knows that there is God. Scripture tells us we're without excuse regarding our not honoring God for what can be known about him is plain to us because God has shown shown it to us, specifically his eternal power and divine nature. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ who came to give himself a ransom for many that they would be saved from the wrath of God against man's sin. This good news needs to be proclaimed. Remember, again, getting ahead of ourselves in the story, Jesus is going to send them out to do what? Proclaim the gospel. Because they're not going to dumb luck their way to the gospel. It has to be proclaimed. The news has to be heard. The good news needs to be proclaimed that people may hear it, know it, and respond to it. That response is either belief or unbelief. Does that make? Does that clarify a little bit? Until the truth of Christ and his gospel is proclaimed to someone, there's been no opportunity to confess belief or unbelief in Christ. We have to proclaim that gospel. Christ has sent us out to proclaim that gospel so that life would be known. And so someone hears that and they respond perhaps like they did in Nazareth of offense. Here's the thing about offense. Offense at Christ, when it's pursued, will only result in hardening in unbelief that at some point could become impenetrable. Now, we have the witness of Scripture that the unbelief wasn't impenetrable for some of those in Nazareth. We don't know the account of everyone in Nazareth, but we do know that there were those in Nazareth that believed. But we have to be careful because the offense that Christ pursued will only result in hardening and unbelief that at some point could become impenetrable. But there's this just really embarrassing habit if you would like to call it that, because we like to hold it out here as opposed to own it. Searching for offense is part of the fallen condition. We like to find offense. Because when I find offense, what does that mean? I occupy a higher place than you do. How dare you offend me? Don't you know who I am? Offense, searching for offense is part of the fallen condition. And sometimes we, because we, we don't like to, we don't, we don't like to start, we, Jesus gets uncomfortable, right? He says, when you're looking at the plank in the other guy's eye, stop looking at the plank and examine what first? Your own eye, right? 
But when it comes to this, we like to point, oh, man, we have a society that you're right, pastor. They love to find offense. They're so bad. Look in the mirror. Do you like to find offense? Have you ever been guilty of taking offense when none was intended? Because if you have, and I say this with a desire to see you made whole, you need to repent. Repent before God and repent to the person that you took offense from that didn't intend it. It doesn't mean that what they said was easy to hear. We have a tendency to go, easy things to hear, right? But those hard things, we have, it's a lot harder, hard, easier for us to take offense at those things. We have to remember, searching for offense is part of the fallen condition. We look at our culture and can likely find any number of examples of the perpetually aggrieved and offended. In a world afflicted by the reality of the fall, that shouldn't come as a surprise. Rather, the surprise, do you know what the surprise should be? Is that even as much as we see it, we don't see it more than we It's not mere ignorance that hinders men, but that of our own accord, we search after grounds of offense. Why? We're left to ourselves to prevent us from following the path to which God invites. The only way offense at Christ can be overcome, because here's the thing, offense can be overcome. And that's to be our desire. We read later that Christ wept over Jerusalem. I wonder, did he weep as he left Nazareth? I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But it's, I, mean, I think it's reasonable to think this man who had known 30 years growing up next to them, perhaps is heartbroken as he leaves that town. The only way offense at Christ can be overcome is by the grace of God. So we must remember as we minister to those around us that for even, even we who are in Christ, who are saved, who are believers in Christ, there was a point in our past, whether it was hard or soft resistance, that we were all offended by who? By Christ. But God in His grace did what? He regenerated us by the work of His Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Word and gave life where only death reigned. We desire that for those who take offense at us, that they would hear the truth of the Jesus we proclaim. Now, we could proclaim it and they could be offended at him. And that, that's right offense. If they're offended at us because we've proclaimed the truth of the gospel, that's right offense. I mean, they, they, can, they can be offended by us for that. If they're offended at us for any other reason, we need to do some soul searching. But we need to recognize in this, offense can turn to delight. And it's our prayer that we would see delight in Christ breaking forth all around us. And by all around us, that includes within these walls. That includes in our jobs. Before we jump to our jobs, that includes in our homes. 
I mean, that, that's where the question gets hard. It presses in. Is your church a place of delight? Because if it is, it means that we don't take wrongful offense at others and we don't seek to give offense to others. It means we also don't just put on a mask. Because we need to have real fellowship. This is one of those things that can really get in and get down at the roots and really cause difficulty, division, and death. But offense can turn into light. It's our prayer that we would see delight in Christ breaking forth all around. And perhaps part of our responsibility in that is to let our only offense be Christ and His Word and to not be easily offended. That's, that's, that's offense. Offense pursued will escort one from non-belief into unbelief and eventually an unbelief that's not overcome, which leads to an eternity of weeping and gnashing teeth. But delight. What if we pursue delight? You're astonished by Christ. You hear His word. You see His works and no testimony of them. You see the change maybe that came about in somebody's life and you're like, I want that. That is something that is so different from this world. Delight pursued will escort one from non-belief into what? Belief. This delight, the delight that I speak of, that the Bible reveals is a true delight. It's not something fleeting with the feelings that pass as quickly as the wind on this weekend. but the delight that was revealed by the one who found that hidden treasure or the one who found that pearl of great value. And you remember what they did immediately? They joyfully, joyfully went and did what? Divested themselves, removed themselves of everything that they might have that one wonderful thing. That one who is the delightful one. It's delight that brings life. Delight encircled and surrounded by joy. That doesn't mean every experience you have with this kind of delight is you would say, what's your life? My life is delightful as you go through like the rag and bone shop of your soul. No. But I can walk in the delight of the Lord. Go read the Psalms. How many times are they in situations that are as serious or more serious than stuff that we face? And they're like, my delight is in the Lord. How do you do that? Because he's there. Because he's present. Because there's been, he's given at some point this one, even if it was just a pinprick of light in the darkest of rooms, they say, there he is. And he's present. He's here. And because he's here, I have hope. It's delight imbued with hope, unshakable, and doesn't disappoint. It's delight rightly understood. It's that delight. When we have that kind of delight, we can say along with the psalmist in 119, that longest of all psalms, he comes back and again and again, your law is the delight of my heart. Because it's your law. It's your word. It's what you've given for life. Delight in Christ pursued by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the common means of grace that He's provided. Scripture reading and meditation. Prayer. Corporate worship, fellowship, being together to hear the Word taught and read. To pray together. 
to sing together in fellowship and in worship of the one true God. These are common means of grace. Scripture reading and meditation, prayer, corporate worship, fellowship, baptism and communion. Going under the waters of baptism when we confess Christ as our Lord and Savior. Coming to the table here once a month to receive of those elements that nourish and point to the one who sustains life. Those common things, they will bring about a continual softening toward the things of God and strengthening through the work he does in every believer to conform them to the image of his Son, who is simultaneously the softest toward the things of God, as well as the strongest man that ever lived. That's the image of the one whom you're being remade in. That's what he's doing. It won't be an easy process. I mean, if you think about this, Jesus delighted to do his Father's will. And as he delighted to do his Father's will, did you notice the people of Nazareth did what? They took offense at Christ. But what does it seem that Christ did not take towards them? That same offense. When we say that we want to be made ever more into the image of Christ, conformed ever more to his image, which I think should shape all of our prayers, it includes that. That's not to say that people don't do things that are offensive to you, but in Christ. Think of Christ could have been offended by every single man, woman, and child he ever encountered. Because why? Because how many of them gave him the glory that he deserved? None. And yet he says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It won't be an easy process. For we were not just very hard, we were dead. In Christ you've been brought to life. But we can delight in the process. Because why? Because we know the one working upon us and within us and with whom we cooperate with, he'll never leave this project. I will not leave you or forsake you. I will not abandon you. Fear not. That includes in the work that I'm doing in you to conform you ever more to the image of my son. And what you need to know is that you can delight in this because though it may not be easy, I will not leave you whom I have chosen unfinished but will bring to completion the good work that I've begun in you. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy, to delight in Him forever. And He doesn't leave that off until our expiration date or He returns. He starts that now. And this is part of that. So we come to Jesus' action. Jesus' action, He didn't take offense at their offenses. Thank God. When we come to 1 Corinthians 10, we see a wonder come about. 1 Corinthians 10, 32 through 11, 1, Paul talks about his life, and he's been talking about what we eat and what we drink. And here's the thing. It's interesting, the words that he chooses, especially in light of this passage. In 1 Corinthians 10, 32, he's just said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Give no offense. How many offenses are you supposed to give? So we got the number zero, right? Give no offense. Now listen to the list. To the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. So who's included in that according to their culture, their time? Who's included? Everyone. Everyone. Where? All around the world. So how many offenses are we supposed to give? Zero. To who? Everyone. How you doing on that? I can only speak personally. Not very well. Which is why I say, thank you, God, that you forgive. Have mercy upon me. Thank you that my righteousness is not my own, but it's Christ's. It is counted as my own. That my account is full. But he says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try. So it's not just that I sit back and if I don't interact with anyone, then it's easy for me to not give offense because I don't talk to anyone. Just as I try to please. So he's out there doing what? Trying. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul, that's such a high bar. I know, and Paul's not saying that I've achieved that. That's not what he's saying. But we've got to have the goal before us, right? The Nazarenes took offense. They scorned him. They scorned how Jesus came and was brought up. I think that's really interesting. Those Nazarenes that were there, they scorned Jesus for how he, how he came and how he was brought up. But what doesn't Jesus do? He's the eternal Son of God who's lived where? For all eternity in realms of glory in the company of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And where am I going? How am I going to be dressed? And you're going to make me the son of what? He didn't take offense at that. In, 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 in Philippians 2, 4 through 8, it says that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what? Humbled himself. How far? That he took on flesh and he went and he did what? He died on a cross. He didn't take offense at that. Why did he not take offense at the cross? So that we, as we proclaim Christ, that we would not remove the offense of the cross. This is the one when we read in Colossians 1 that he in every way is the image of the invisible God. And he says, I'll go. I'll get down and I'll wash their stinky feet. I will die for them. I will be regarded as cursed by God for them. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He didn't take offense at it. He declared the only place a prophet is without honor. Remember, 
The rejection that Jesus experienced in Nazareth was murderous, scoffing, and went all the way into the home he grew up in. He was among, if we step back for a little bit, Jesus grew up as a Nazarene. You would know, probably by the way he talked, walked, and what have you, that he was from where? Nazareth. And the people around him, those that he looked the most like, what did they do with him? They rejected him. They took offense at him. Is it getting more uncomfortable? We proclaim the name of Christ. We've been remade in his image. What about us? We're the people that look like Christ. As he comes, as he arrives, when his word is proclaimed, when we come to parts of it that are difficult for us, which path do we take? Do we take offense at him? Or do we take offense at our own inability to understand? Because if I take offense at my own ability to understand, then I say, have mercy upon me, forgive me, give me wisdom that I might understand. And give it to me in your timing. But if I take offense at him, no, this can't be what he wrote. This can't be what he said because I don't like it. I haven't just taken offense with the pastor or the teacher. Who have I taken offense with? If they're clearly cutting the word of God, who have I taken offense with? And if you think it doesn't happen in the study during the week for the pastor as he goes through scripture and looks at things, you've got another thing coming. But by God's grace and through your prayers for me, for any of those who prepare the word, Father, if they come to a place where they're offended by your word, let them hit their knees. Let them hit their knees because their problem is with you. And I don't want them to have a problem with you. And I don't want them to put before me things that aren't true. I want them to put forward the delight of the word even when I feel the pinch from the delight because it's come from you. Is the Savior without honor within, this, within his house that he's building? Let it not be so. But let our answer be one that takes the time to examine our hearts and submit to them. For though we are saved, we know that there are none without sin. What's that cry of Psalm 139? It's not a cry that you should utter unthinkingly. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Don't get to that part where you find a grievous way because I know that I have not arrived at the state at which I will be in your presence, that where there is no sin remaining. If you examine my heart, I know you will find something there. And when you find it, let me not grow hard or be offended at you. Bring me around that corner into that way everlasting, that path that you have me on, and may I continue. Unhindered, ungrieving of the Spirit. 
who has revealed that. Let that be our cry, and may we mean it and submit and repent and follow. Follow as he reveals and he works. The result, Jesus didn't do many mighty works there due to their unbelief. But we also have a reality that Proverbs 19.11 is coming true here, which says good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. Because what they did was offensive, and he did what? He overlooks it. Matthew 13.58 shows that Jesus refused to perform many miracles in Nazareth because of the people's unbelief. The context shows that their unbelief consists of dismissing Jesus as merely a carpenter's son despite his astonishing teaching and mighty works. There were still some done, but not many. Not limited in his power by their unbelief that would make him dependent upon them for power. That's just isn't the case. He knew their hearts and knew more mighty works wouldn't affect them. And we've already talked about that acts of simultaneous judgment yet mercy. Do we want to see him work? There's lots of answers to why don't we see God work, you know, as abundantly as abound. I think I think he does work as abundantly. We maybe don't look real closely sometimes. But the blame gets laid at a lot of feet of different things. The people don't pray enough. They don't read their Bible enough. They don't do this, that, and the other thing enough. Could perhaps part of it be we've taken offense at the God who has saved us? I mean, if it is, you have to search your own heart. God, why, why, why am I not seeing you? Are, well, you've taken offense at me. And I'm still here. Because you're in Christ and your confession is true, you're... You're still secure, but you've taken offense at me. Rather than humble yourself, be contrite. And we have to recognize the reality that as we're in Christ, it's one, it's one thing to take, to take offense at his word, but there's also something else. When Christ saves someone, he puts them into how many bodies? One. Which means that as he puts them in one body, what has he done? He's chosen them to be part of that one body. Do you think he likes it when those that are part of that one body take offense where none is intended? Or deliberately give offense that's outside of the full truth of the gospel? I don't think he does. I think Scripture is pretty clear that when we when we see that there's something you know, there's a something that our brother has against us, we're to go to them. I'm not saying that's an easy trip to make or an eager conversation to have, but if it overcomes offense and brings reconciliation into that one body, so that we might know more the wonders of who He is and what He's done, why would we not want that? We have to recognize the difference between giving offense and taking offense. If our offensiveness is found to be in our confession of Christ, the proclamation of his gospel, and living in obedience to his word, then we stand on solid ground. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in a fallen world, when we confess, cling, and argue that very thing, the world will take offense. 
that he who is the stone of stumbling and the rock offense and those who are his. We know that. Should not be a surprise. When they take offense, it doesn't give us license for open season to be offended at everything. It just doesn't. If we deliberately seek to be offensive outside of the faithful confession of Scripture, that is sin. And we need to repent. On the other side, it's also a sin to take offense where none is intended. Unfortunately, we can be very good at this. It lives and it thrives in the realm of personal speculation about the intentions and the motivations of another whose heart I don't know. And if you wonder about this, consider how often someone has perhaps asked you, hey, why did you do that? Hey, why did you say that? And how often has your response been something along the lines of, I don't know. What does that reveal if that's your response? You don't even know the motivations of your own heart. How could, if you don't know the motivations of your own heart, the one that you know the best, how could you know the motivations of another's? What it does is it betrays an unwillingness to humble oneself, to go to the person and ask what they might have meant or why they did something. Because why do you want to, why do you want to know? Because I care about you and I care about us. I know that you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. We're part of one body. And I want there to be peace there because that's what Christ, Christ brings peace. It betrays that unwillingness to humble himself. It also reveals an unloving heart toward whoever it may be. And we get into really dangerous area there because what, you know, that's, that's an opposition to reconciliation, the very thing Christ came to bring between God and men as well as between his people and an unloving heart, unloving heart toward someone that God has chosen to be among you. Then you're not taking issue with just them. You're taking issue with who? God, why would you put them among us? Because they're mine. And as they're mine, they're also your brother and sister or sister. And they're what? They're part of one body. And I have a reason for them there. And I have a purpose for them there. So if they've given offense, go and be reconciled. If you've taken offense and none was intended, go figure it out so that you can be at peace. It doesn't mean necessarily you'll be best friends, but we're at peace, we're reconciled. We can come together and say, that's my savior. That's my brother. That's my sister. And what has he done? He's brought peace between us. Not a false peace, but a real, genuine, deep-rooted peace. And I look forward to the day when the sin that still resides in my own heart will be gone so that that fight won't have to be there anymore. Because that's what's coming. Can we ask that God would help us to delight in not taking offense? but in what our God has chosen for and provided for us? Because what does he choose for us? What does he provide for us? That which he's going to work together for good, good for his people and glory. Read the, when we go through the Bible, we see any number of stories where it's like, I have no idea how you're going to work in this. And we continue in that same vein today. But Joseph, in the midst of it, figures out that they meant evil. 
But God did what? He worked it for good. That doesn't mean easy. That doesn't mean the situations are good. Don't mishear that. Consider this. Our Savior took no offense at what resides in our hearts. He knows what's there. He knows them better than we do. He died even for that sin of offense, wrongly given or wrongly taken. That's part of the joy of being in Christ. If you've been guilty, rejoice that he saved you from that sin as well. Repent and ask that he would make your heart daily more like his. Daily more like his. Because offense pursued results in what? Unbelief which leads to eternal damnation. Delight in Christ pursued results in belief, growing, thriving, bearing fruit, and eternity in heaven with Him. So as we walk through this day, and every day He gives us, by the power of the Spirit that resides within us, let us honor Him. Let us delight in Him. Let us not take offense at Him and those that He's put alongside of us to walk with. And let's grow daily in our belief in Him, rejoicing in the journey He's put us on and looking forward to the destination in which the things that come up between us, they'll no longer be there because they're gone. And we're with Him.